Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When the pandemic struck, writer David Gessner turned to David Henry David Thoreau, the original social distancer, for lessons on how to live. Those lessons, learning our own backyard, rewilding, loving nature, self-reliance, civil disobedience, hold a secret that could help save us, he says, as we face greater crisis of climate. Gessner's new book is Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. It's published by Tory House Press. David Gessner is author previously of uh, books including Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness, and New York Times bestseller All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegmer, Stegner in the American West. He's chair of the Creative Writing Department at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, founder and editor-in-chief of Ecotone, and he lives in Wilmington, North Carolina with his wife, the novelist Nina de Gramont, and their daughter Hadley. Welcome back to the program, David Gettner. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm actually driving toward Utah right now. Excellent. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Well, <laughs> good, good to have you out here. So I see on your website some events out here, uh, some of which are in person. Yeah. Is that why you're driving out? Yeah. Okay. Yes. The first one's at, in Torrey on Thursday at 8, and the next one's at the Boulder Mountain Lodge. Wonderful place. Uh, a brunch event at 11, and then I'm getting Salt Lake City and Ken Sanders' rare books on the 15th at 7 at night. So it's a it's a Utah week ahead for me. <laughs> well, be be good sure. to have you good to have you here. That's uh, that's wonderful. I'm writing down these times yeah. here. We can mention those a few times as we go through the the program. So you'll be in uh, Torrey, Boulder, in Salt Lake City. So that's that's great. Great. Um, hey Tom, before yes. we start, can I make two corrections to yeah. your introduction? They're yeah. Not yes. Mean corrections, but the first is hallelujah. I am no longer chair of the creative writing department as of July 1st. Very good. I'm a free man in terms of (laughs) not having to take care of 17 other faculty members. It's been a great, great joy. Well, congratulations on that. We'll remove that from the bio. (laughs) And the second is I helped write the publicity material. So I helped write the, before the pandemic, um, when the pandemic struck. But the funny thing about the book is, in January and February of last year, before the pandemic struck, I was rebuilding my little writing shack behind my house. I was reading a biography of Thoreau. I built an Osprey platform. It was like I was readying for a test I didn't know I was going to have to take. So weirdly, I was ready when the pandemic struck to kind of retreat into those places. Yeah, that struck me reading the book. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's like you had advanced knowledge, although you didn't. <laughs> yeah, I was cheating. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, by the, by the way, uh, you do write in the book that you you were building this shack, and then parenthetically you say, "Guess who inspired that?" Right. Right. Exactly. So I was massively influenced, I guess, by Thoreau as a young person, and I start the book by saying, uh, when my daughter was two, she's eighteen now, but when she was two, we went to Walden Pond on a little pilgrimage, and I had her up on my shoulders and was walking with my wife, and I pointed to the cabin, where he or the foundation where the cabin had been, and I said, that's where the man lived who ruined your father's life. <laughs> and, the, you know, ruined in a good way, as I say in the book. And one of the ways he ruined it is I started to keep journals, and I thought about being a writer, and the next thing I knew, law school and being a doctor were out the window, and I was going to choose this crazy career. 
But while I started journal keeping right away, the influence of the cabin in the woods uh, didn't really kick in until my 50th birthday. And on the day after that birthday, I built a little writing shack in the corner of my yard in North Carolina or on a salt marsh. And it was this great retreat for me. And it really, uh, I got tons of my work done there. I actually wrote a couple of the Western books in the, um, in the writing shack in North Carolina, odd as that may sound. And then Hurricane Florence came along and destroyed it. I mean, it basically floated out to sea. It had eight feet of water in it. So it was, it was the perfect place to observe climate change, I guess. And, um, and it collapsed on me. So right before the pandemic, I was rebuilding it, and, and just in the nick of time, as it turned out. I want to read the sentence, uh, I imagine one of the sentences that it affected you deeply, you say, when you discovered Walden at age 16. This is quoting Thoreau. The life that men praise and call successful is but one kind. And so it, yeah, it, exactly. that affected you, and you, I, yeah. I don't have to be a lawyer or whatever, right? Right. Well, it was kind of like, you know, I... I had a very ambitious father, and I internalized a lot of his demands, and and most of them for the better. You know, I was pretty driven. So I had this part of me that was real ambitious. And my dad would, I get a 98, and my dad would say, What happened to the other two points? And, um, but what Thoreau did is he offered an authoritative, powerful voice on the other side of things. And I've already mentioned the journals. So, for instance, I was trying to write novels in my 20s, and they were big, clunky novels where the characters quoted throughout each other, and no one wanted to read or buy them. Um, and at the same time, I was working in the journals where I would do my more personal voice, and I would write about the natural world. I'd write about you know, my thoughts and feelings. And strangely, ultimately, it was that journal voice that became my published voice. I never published my early fiction my first novel was a, I mean, my first book was a book about my dad's death at the early age of 56. And it's called A Wild Ranked Place. The full quote is, it is a wild ranked place and there is no flattery in it. And I like the no flattery part. So that was the first time I really used my journal voice in a, in a published work. So that was a gift Thoreau gave me, that it's not always the drive, the goals, the, you know, the kind of anal side of things. It's it's this other side that kind of grows up organically. So that was one way. And the shack was another way, because I do my most of my work in my office in the morning. I write for three hours, and I have deadlines. And then the shack, where I go with a beer in the evenings and bird watch and let thoughts come to me, was exactly like that quote. You know, it was a different... It wasn't the life men praise and call successful... It was something else, a kind of counter life to my regular life. Let me just, uh, I'll just read this paragraph. This is from uh, page four. Uh, this is David Gessner. Let me suggest with no evidence at all that others are feeling this too. Um, you, you, you say there's something not entirely negative about this change as the pandemic hits. Uh, that for at least half of us, this is a time of, of enforced simplification, a time of enforced patience. And the pace of the time highlights what we left behind, the fast break, the fast twitch uh, pace, and yes, the desperation of our lives before. And uh, you quote, uh, you have some several short quotes from 
uh, from Throw. I'd like to go through a few of these and, and get your brief comments sure. and we'll get, go, go on those. And you, you say, <laughs> here in modern bullet point format is some of what he told us in his thorny, brilliant, non-bullet point prose. But you've put some of these in bullet points. Uh, so there's a famous quote that I, I, I remember, but I hadn't remembered it was Thoreau. The massive men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. I think that what you just said, um, you know, I started the show by celebrating not being chair of the department anymore. And when I was chair, I sometimes felt like I was playing a game of space invaders, shooting down incoming emails and tweets and beeps and all that. And so there was an aspect of uh, desperation in that, you know, and in the way we live. And I think he would see in the way we live now in a greatly increased desperation. So there was an aspect. Now, I, I, I find myself, as soon as I say this, wanting to counterbalance it by saying people were dying. My sister was working in a hospital. My mom was in a nursing home. A good friend of mine died that summer. And so I'm not making claims that, you know, the pandemic was this la-di-da wonderful time. It wasn't. But it did drive home that idea of slowing down, of studying your backyard. You know, I'd always been a bird watcher, but I was really focused on the clapper rails in my backyard and the fiddler crabs, and because I had to be. And I really enjoyed, you know, another famous throw quote is, I've traveled a good deal in Concord. Basically, he's saying what we all knew, what we all experienced, which is, you're going to take your vacation and your time in your backyard. And he was a master of his backyard, and that's how he fought against desperation. Uh, here's another quote from Thoreau. The cost of a thing is the amount of what I would call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. Exactly. So he said, you know, he, he talked about how he would beat the train to Fitchburg because if he walked and the passenger paid, the passenger had to include the time they spent working to make that money. And that we don't really think hard about the choices we make in terms of sometimes it's better to do with less instead of constantly striving for more. Now, as I say in the book, that's not my nature. I use Thoreau as a kind of beacon. But, you know, a great writer who wrote actually about Utah quite a bit, who just died, Reg Sonner, who was at the University of Colorado, has a line in one of his books, we humans are an elsewhere. And I think we're always, you know, we're always thinking of the past or jumping to the future. And how can we, how can we slow down to be now? Um, and I'm not naturally good at, at doing it with less and being quieter and patience. But I think there are things to strive for. And I think we got a little glimpse of how, how we might live differently. Uh, I'll just do one more here. Let your, this is Thoreau, let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine. Well, of course, that is more the other side of Thoreau, the activist Thoreau. And what I thought was fascinating is once I started to write about him, uh, early, in the, early in the year I published an essay about how we could lean on Thoreau. But then I continued to, I started to think, this might be a book that I'm writing as the year goes. And the amazing thing was, as we turned toward protests in the streets and Black Lives Matter in June, my reading had turned toward that other side of Thoreau, civil disobedience. You know, as old people like me who used to play a Trivial Pursuit note by, from one of the cards, Thoreau was the biggest, one of the biggest influence on Gandhi and Martin Luther King early in their careers as activists and, and fighters. So Thoreau, in his own way, not only 
You know, he didn't go to Walden to just escape the world. He went to confront the world. And though his famous protest meant only one night in jail, he really he kind of put his money where his mouth was. He always, um, you know, said, "I'm going to fight the larger machine. I'm going to fight um, the, the way most people do things." Yeah, I find that very interesting uh, because my conception. I get you. You say we need to be careful about the cliche of Thoreau, right? But so that was one of the, exactly. I guess, stereotypes I had in my mind that that he did go to Walden to escape the world. You say he did not. He went to confront the world. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, and maybe it's worth backing up for people who aren't as familiar with him. You know, in 1845, Henry David Thoreau graduated from Harvard, but it was a really undistinguished career. He moved back to Concord, where his mentor. Ralph Waldo Emerson was, you know, pretty much the most famous writer in the country. People out west had Emerson's essays by their bedside. And Emerson wrote about nature, which Thoreau would too. And he was this looming figure who Thoreau both defined himself by and against. And so he started to write, and he faced a problem all writers face. How do you make money? I mean, I say in the book that those businessmen who tell you in college, don't go into the arts because you'll never make money. They're right. I didn't publish my first book till I was 35. And Thoreau's practical solution, in a way, to the problem of, you know, he was a surveyor and he did other jobs, was in 1845 to move to, uh, to build a small cabin. On July 4th, he celebrated his independence, 1845. He moved to this land, built a cabin, and it was on Emerson's land, which added another twist to the kind of influence when you think about it. And he lived there for two years and a little longer. And during that time, he confronted the essential facts of life in his, in his own words. The misconception is that he thought he was in the wilderness. He wasn't. He was, the town road was right above him, and people would call down, what are you doing there, Henry? <laughs> and in a way, Walden is a response to that. Walden is saying, this is what I'm doing here, and this is why I'm here, and why maybe you should find your own Walden. So for a lot of people, like myself, it's a book. You know, it's interesting, because speaking of Utah, Desert Solitaire, Ed Abbey says Desert Solitaire, is about the only other book I know, maybe the Bible, too, <laughs> that has converted as many people, um, well, uh, the Bible, but I'll say converted to wilderness, you know, and, and and wildness in Thoreau's case, because the important distinction is his famous quote is, in wildness is the preservation of the world. He didn't say wilderness. It's a kind of, you can find wildness in lots of places. It doesn't have to be atop a mountain or on a raging river. So Thoreau, in his domestic kind of small way, found his own wild at Walden during those two years. Uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the book. You just made reference to this. <laughs> uh, my conception of Walden was kind of removed, right? But but this is on Everson's property. It's <laughs> it's near the high road. So people did actually, yeah. as they were traveling, yell down to Henry. They would throw. Yeah, yeah. And he and he had visitors. And, and, and so, you know, it was really more of a, He's, you know, he gets criticized. Everybody, you know, as soon as I posted that I was going to do a book, they were like, don't you know he went took his laundry home to his mother? And I'm like, yeah, but he was very intertwined with his family and that, you know, he would go home for Sunday dinners. So it wasn't, he wasn't John Muir walking to California, basically. He was conducting a smaller experiment. And a lot of it, you know, on the 
to your point, on the first page of Walden, he says, I would not talk about myself if there were anyone else I knew as well. <laughs> so he's telling his story in a way in response to those people who said, what the hell are you doing? I do want to pick up this idea of wildness, right? As opposed to wilderness, do that after the break. But uh, before we go to break, just parenthetically, I found this so interesting that the relationship between Emerson and, and Thoreau, you talk a little bit about that. Emerson kind of, I mean, saw the genius, right? But uh, wished that Thoreau were he more did. ambitious, I suppose. Yeah, you know, kind of Emerson. Let's let's cast Emerson in the role of my dad and Thoreau in the role of me. Emerson was saying, "Where where are those other two points on the test?" and and he really couldn't understand that Thoreau really didn't care as much about acclaim and the usual things as most people do. And and Thoreau, in turn became critical of Emerson. He said, I've never seen him trundle a wheelbarrow um, down the street. In other words, his nature was esoteric and lofty and theoretical compared to Thoreau's dirty, earthy, you know, in-the-roots kind of nature. So that's how Thoreau defined himself against Emerson. He said, you know, you can be all highfalutin, but this is is the dirt. This is where I come from. The book is Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, subtitled Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. It's published by Tory House uh, Press, uh, and the author is David Gessner, who is the now former department uh, chair for, for uh, creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Yeah, that I, I know. I, I've <laughs> We're here in the middle of academia with Utah Public Radio, and I know what pressure that is, so that's that's a big thing for you. Um, he is author of uh, several other books, including New York Times bestseller, All the Wild That Remains, and he lives in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, let me mention the events again uh, coming up on July 8th. It's coming Wednesday, the Atrata Institute in Torrey, 8 p.m. You can uh, interact with David Gessner. This is an in-person event. Boulder Mountain Lodge in Boulder on Sunday, July 11th, 11 a.m. David Gessner, that's in person as well? Yes, they're all, all in person. All these are in person. And then July 15th at Ken Sanders Rare Books, 7 p.m. That's in Salt Lake City, an in-person event. So uh, those are some places you can interact with uh, David Gessner. Uh, more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the USU Lyric Repertory Company, presenting The Mountaintop, a drama about the last day of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. His reflections on his achievements, failures, and unfinished dreams. Performances through July 17th. Details at lyricrep.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... Authentic organic blues meets high-tech recording studio effects around the world for a compelling musical fusion. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Blues Lounge, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. It's a strange trade, a strange profession, no? Putting paint on canvas, slaving, persisting, torturing myself day and night. Why do I do this? Pursuit of the truth. A weekend with Pablo Picasso. Written and performed by Herbert Seguenza. Who does she think I am? Dali? Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. 
Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer David Gessner. Uh, he's on his way to Utah. There are several events. We mentioned those again on Wednesday. He'll be at the Atrada Institute in Torrey, 8 p.m. It's an in-person event. We, we have to say that these days, right? In person, because we've been gotten so used yeah. to Zoom events, uh, which were... It's been so fun to yeah. have in-person events again. Yeah, so... Uh, I in, ha- go ahead. Tom, I have it written down as the 8th at 7 p.m. in Trotta. I could be wrong, but that's yeah. right. Uh, so that would be Thursday, I think. Oh, uh, th- uh, third. okay. The 8th at 7 yep. p.m. Let me correct that. Okay. Right. So July 8th in Trotta Institute in Torrey, uh, 7 p.m., uh, Boulder Mountain Lodge in Boulder, Utah, Sunday, July 11th, 11 a.m., and July 15th, Ken Sanders Rare Books, 7 p.m. That's in Salt Lake City, of course. Uh, yep. j- just a, just another uh, Thoreau quote before we get into wildness. Uh, Thoreau says, okay. I love a broad margin to my life. What's he talking about there? I think he's talking about the opposite of what most of us feel, at least if we're over the age of 30, <laughs> which is... You know, just so much going on. You know, his, his most famous uh, injunction is to simplify, right? Simplicity, simplify, simplify, simplify. And I guess what he's getting at is not feeling the the complete desperation and rush from thing to thing, and that we're never doing any one thing deeply and fully, but we're scattered among so many things. So I think that... Uh, I mean, he's a good model. And one thing I talk about in the book is patience. And I was at the University of Colorado as a grad student. I had a class with a great writer named Linda Hogan. And she sent us out and said, watch an animal. And I was kind of rolled my eyes. I wasn't a nature writer at the time. And I was, okay, I'll go do that. And I watched a great blue heron for a, for a month, taking notes, you know, going out every day. And when I watched it fish, and it would just hesitate, 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 hit. Um, I just thought, this isn't patience in some groovy way. This is patience because it works. Patience is effective. So I really feel like if we did have more broad margins in our lives, if we focused more on the most important things and gave it our full concentration, it would be to our great benefit. And, And I feel happier when I'm doing that. And that's that kind of patience that certainly does not describe most of us, does it? It certainly doesn't describe us collectively. How do we develop yeah, that? Yeah, and it's important to say that in the book it doesn't really describe me. It's like something I'm working toward. You know, I say in the book that Thoreau is a little bit of a freak in a way. He doesn't need much. Uh, he says water is the only drink for a wise man, and I, I counter with saying beer works for me, you know, and and Netflix binging occasionally. So we're not all Thoreau, but that doesn't mean we can't strive to be more that way. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. So I picture you out in your shack, kind of Thoreau-like, but an occasional Netflix binge as well, right? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) And and another thing that goes with that is I was saying by the fall, when I got more and more into bird watching, I'd listen to, to birds and then I'd go up to the house and listen to, you know, CNN. And, and then that it, what a weird year where it was such an internal year in a way, but such an external one. That and, and I think we'll get to that, but that's really Thoreau in a way. 
he's in way we think of him as apolitical and retreating from the world, but he was intensely political. So he had both those things always going on. But I want to get to to Wilde. Yes. You want to talk yeah, about. Yes, definitely. Um, so let me just read this. You quote Thoreau. This is Thoreau. I caught a glimpse of a woodchuck um, stealing across my path, and it felt a strange thrill of savage delight, and was strongly tempted to seize and devour him raw. Not that I was hungry then, except for that wildness which he represented. And you talked earlier about wildness versus wilderness. Yeah, I mean, I just think um, that's the subtitle of the book, too, right? Quiet desperation on the one hand and savage delight on the other. And I just think there's a thrill to that kind of moment. I mean, it sounds a little strange to, you know, throttle and consider eating a woodchuck, but those moments of wildness that aren't necessarily pristine or wilderness, but but they're wild. And for me, um, you know, the book is set up, so I follow the year month by month, and there are a couple essays or a couple chapters each each month, and we give the COVID deaths at the beginning, and it's just startling to see how low the numbers are in the first March. So the first chapter talks about the things we've talked about already, like learning our backyard, and Thoreau is a brilliant student of phenology, which is the phenomenon of the year moving through the year, when things bud, when the birds return, um, and they still use his observations from the journal Climate scientists in Concord, Massachusetts, use those to compare to, to today. So that's the first chapter, but the second really focuses on what you're talking about, wilding and rewilding. And I think this was a thrill for me, and I bet it was for some other people, suddenly seeing the videos of animals returning to the city or the sky clearing so people could see the Himalayas for the first time. And for me, since I lived in Boulder, Colorado for a good while, one of the exciting thrill moments, savage delight moments, was seeing a pair of mountain lions strolling down Main Street um, during a snowstorm. And on a smaller level, I was experiencing that at home because I still was chair. So I was the only one who could go into our building. And it was a little like Will Smith during that apocalyptic movie where the whole campus was empty. And one day there was a knock on my door and I hadn't had a knock in a long time. And it was a campus cop. And we started to talk about how strange the campus was. And she said, yeah, you should see it at night. Coyotes prowl down Chancellor's Walk, and deer are nibbling over by the rec center. So there was a thrill, a kind of savage delight um, to aspects early on of the pandemic. And the thought, maybe, what if we took a time out for a couple months every year? Could things uh, heal themselves? Could nature's famous resilience kind of come through? Now, I think to some extent, scientifically, the answer was no, other than the air quality, which which did change dramatically. You know, we didn't make enough of enough of a um, dent into our, our larger climate crisis, but it certainly didn't hurt uh, to fly less, to drive less, to do less. In fact, you, you talked to some scientists, right? Maybe you did uh, pause there and talk a little bit yes. more about that. Uh, some were more hopeful than others, uh, I suppose, about the, what, what this could do if, if we're able to do it again. And, and, of course, there's doubt about that, right? Unless another pandemic hits or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because we all talk, we th- when we think about environmental things, we ask the question, is there reason to hope? Because if there isn't, right, we withdraw into kind of a 
mental um, fetal position, basically, and don't do anything. So we want to have hope. On the other hand, I will say that the results that I got from talking to many scientists were not particularly hopeful. You know, one guy just con- concluded we're screwed unless we don't do something bigger. Now, I guess bigger would mean technology and laws and things like that, but I can't imagine humans doing much bigger than what we were forced to do during those first couple months. So I was, you know, there was something thrilling about it, but it was also discouraging that we didn't we didn't do more. And yeah, I talked to many scientists, and uh, uh, nobody told me uh, we've solved it. This <laughs> do this every year, and there'll be no no climate change. And I do think one of the themes of the book is uh, we have. Uh, though I'm thrilled that things have loosened up in terms of the pandemic, I believe we have crises ahead. For instance. I'll be flying back from here, and I'm flying, so I'm a hypocrite too, right? Um, uh, During fire season, and I'm going to get back home right in time for hurricane season. And in the last decade, uh, it used to be we'd have occasional hurricanes. Now it's a reliable thing, and they're big, and they're scary, and they, you know, in, in, in the way that we feel about fire out here, we feel about hurricanes there. They can destroy my my house my life basically they took out the shack last time i i don't want them to take out the house itself so if there's how uh, you call it you know maybe dimming hope uh writ broadly are there things that uh, that you're doing that keep your hope up personally that, that we can do person by person well i think maybe maybe the metaphor you know i i you know i feel bad doing such a sweeping, first of all, the, the numbers aren't in and the science isn't in. Uh, and a couple of scientists said to me, well, this is fascinating from a scientific point of view because it's like this grand experiment, right? So we, we don't have that. But the small, the small, it's always helped me to go to limited nature and small nature. And that's a thorough lesson, too. You know, he wasn't climbing the Alps. He was on a little pond in his hometown. And so for me, seeing those rewilding moments... Seeing, uh, seeing the success of, say, my daughter's involved in a lot of environmental, she's 18 now, and she's involved in a lot of environmental work in, in our town, and that includes cleaning the beach. And one of the areas on the beach that I started to go to, uh, Wrightsville Beach is a barrier island, and on the south end, I found this little patch of woods where these green herons uh, uh, roost, and where these black skimmers, these birds that come out, crazy-looking birds with candy corn beaks, come back from South America. And doing those daily walks, in my own way, was trying to get that phenology thing going, right, to see how the year turned. And for me, that was a very hopeful thing. Now, it's not saving the world, um, but it does give me some deep pleasure. Um, and I think that's the interesting thing about Thoreau. You've got these different throws, right? You've got the one, I'm looking at an aspen tree right now, and I'm seeing the kind of tinkling uh, movement of the leaves. You've got that throw, the kind of lyric throw. You've got the kind of adamant, we should do with less, almost scolding throw. You've got the activist throw, um, and, and they all kind of are intermixed in that one person. You know, if you don't mind, speaking of the activist, because we've gone a little light on that, because uh, that happens a little later in the year, I'd love to read uh, Martin Luther King's quote 
about Thoreau, which will probably help explode the notion that he's um, he's just a, a hermit, basically. Yeah, certainly. So this is uh, from Martin Luther King's autobiography. I became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. No other person has been more eloquent and passionate in getting this idea across than Henry David Thoreau. As a result of his writings and personal witness, we are the heirs of a legacy of creative protests. The teachings of Thoreau came alive in our civil rights movement. Indeed, they are more alive than ever before. Whether expressed in a sit-in at lunch counters, a freedom ride into Mississippi, a peaceful protest in Albany, Georgia, a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, these are outgrowths of Thoreau's insistence that evil must be resisted and that no moral man can patiently adjust to injustice. So that's a pretty strong statement, um, and I think that it's really interesting that Thoreau the artist had to go away. You know, it's kind of like the, the idea of going away and finding this, this gift and then bringing it back to the world. Um, and, and the world used it. Uh, Gandhi writes similarly in his autobiography about Thoreau. His autobi- he writes in his autobiography about Thoreau. Not his- he didn't write an autobiography of Thoreau. <laughs> right, right, yes. Right. Yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, tell us a bit more about what uh, your thoughts as, uh, you know, as this pandemic year went on overlaid on this were the were the protests right after the death, death of uh, george yes, floyd and, yes. and you're thinking this through the prism of, of thoreau yeah i think at that chapter begins um uh everyone well, the world has changed everyone is now sporting thoreau haircuts you know something kind of amish looking about people that i'm dealing with and and then suddenly we went from being in our houses to out of our houses right and uh, and part of that, my daughter led a high school group um, protesting um, the George Floyd mur- murder um, in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, which has a fraught racial history. So um, what I started to do, let me see if I can find how the 4th of July, since we just we just had the weekend, um, how um, we, this is from Independence Day in the July chapter. We can see the two Thoreaus on two Fourth of Julys. On July 4, 1854, Thoreau joined abolitionists Sojourner Truth and William Lloyd Garrison for a rally to protest slavery. This is the rally where Thoreau stood under a black-draped American flag hung upside down and where Garrison burned copies of the Fugitive Slave Act and the U.S. Constitution. On the same day, nine years earlier, Thoreau had celebrated his independence by moving to his cabin on Walden Pond. So you see both of them there. Um, and it's funny because we're, you know, we're in the, I teach in the American South, and someone said to me, there's never been such a fraught time racially. And another professor who's a Southerner said, uh, what about the Civil War? So the, what was in the air right there um, for Thoreau was you know, preceding the Civil War and was this intensely political time that, that he was involved with. What's been really interesting to me as a teacher is to see that translated not just to race, but to climate issues, where I see in my grad students and in my daughter uh, an anxiety and a personal response to climate that I've never really had. Um, for me, it's been more theoretical, something I learned later, um, 
through books and then through the world. But to them, it's this kind of looming anxiety, maybe maybe comparable to, you know, fears of the bomb during the the USSR, uh, United States years of, of, of escalation. Yeah, that that collective anxiety. How do we? I get, what do you tell your daughter? What? Uh, how do we counteract that? Well, I go. I mean, in, in one aspect we haven't talked about the book yet, really, is that writing is central. You know, the art of living and the art of writing. And for me, writing and the momentum of writing and doing it every day has helped keep me afloat, basically, psychologically. It's a, it's a mood stabilizer in the way working out is. And one of the things it taught me is start with a small thing and keep pushing, and then momentum takes over. And uh, my daughter has an activist gene that I don't have. You know, Ed Abbey said, uh, one brave act is worth a thousand books, right? So I don't believe that, because if I'd, I did, I'd feel self-loathing. I mean, my, a lot of my activism is through my writing. But I watch her getting out there and organizing and calling people, and I feel hopeful about that. And I do feel hopeful about small, resilient, you know, wilderness success stories. A large success story, which I wrote about in my previous book, Leave It As It Is, which was partly about Teddy Roosevelt, but partly about Bears Ears National Monument. Uh, but a larger success story is the rewilding that's taken place in the Y2Y, the Yellowstone to Yukon corridor, where they've, you know, they've made this migratory corridor that includes going under bridges, underpasses, and and bridges over that are wooded, and the animals have taken to it. The big carnivores have taken to it and migrate along those paths. So I do believe that rewilding on a larger scale is possible, but the political will to do it, um, I mean, that's partly the writer's uh, job, you know, is to get people inspired and fired up to, to to fight these fights. So I feel like that's my part. And so all cobbled together, you know, I stay psychologically afloat. Um, it's it's dark times, but uh, but what's the choice, right? Yeah, um, right. What's what's the alternative? You got to yeah. fight off, fight, yeah. fight on, right? Right. By the way, you you mentioned the the Y two Y. I was very struck. Um, by uh, later in that paragraph, you talk about the Yak Valley Forest Council. You say that this is you're, they're not uh, saving a theoretical number of bears; they're saving twenty-four bears with that project. Exactly. So that's 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 um, that's what I mean by the smaller fights, and it's not small for those twenty-four bears. That's for sure. Right? Yeah. So that that was a. Uh, there are some Western chapters in, in the book, and that was one of them. I was actually coming back west to uh, finish up my Theodore Roosevelt book, and I hitched a ride with a, a, a pilot named Bruce Gordon, who runs EcoFlight, and he happened to be traveling up to the Yak Valley, and it gave me a, a startling overview of Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and looping back down, and 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 a little Utah too in the distance, and what it really what I came away with was still the vast spaces and, and the beauty. Now, there were lots of dead trees uh, from either beetle kill or, or fires, and there, was, there were, you could see the problems when you went through the fracking areas. 
in Wyoming, but you also had hope when you saw the, how much space there still was and, and how beautiful it was. Uh, and I've never seen anything like that. We were in like in a little four-seater plane looking at things from above. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with David Gessner. Uh, he's the New York Times bestselling author of All the Wild It Remains, uh, author of many other books. Uh, the new book is Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight. The subtitle is Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. It's published by Tory House Press. Just mentioned some events. Uh, David Gessner will be in person at these events. So July 8th at the Entrada Institute in Torrey. That event is at 7 p.m. Then at the Boulder Mountain Lodge in Boulder, Utah on July 11th. Um, 11 a.m. And finally, uh, for the Utah events, July 15th, Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City, 7 p.m. for that event. We'll have more with David Gessner following this. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. In the United States, women make about 82% of what men make for comparable work. And the numbers in Utah are more extreme, where a woman earns approximately 71 cents for every dollar a man earns. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In our next podcast episode, we'll dig into the gender wage gap and what it means for Utah women. Listen now at utwomen.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have with us writer uh, David Gessner. The new book is Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight. Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. It's out from Tory House Press. There are events coming up. You can interact with David Gessner. These are in-person events. So July 8th, Entrada Institute in Tory, 7 p.m. Boulder Mountain Lodge in Boulder at 11 a.m. on the 11th. And uh, July 15th, Ken Sanders Rare Books, 7 p.m. That's in Salt Lake City. So, David Gessner, I want to, this this struck me, this is uh, from the chapter called Homeless. I'll just uh, Mm -hmm. quote you here. This is David Gessner. I remember the weeks after the towers fell being particularly beautiful along the coast. The planes crashed into the twin buildings. The people fell or jumped, but while human beings were convinced that nothing would ever be the same, the natural world carried on as it always had. Then later in this uh, paragraph... It might sound quaint, uh, might sound quaint and pastoral, but it wasn't. Not exactly. It was in Congress, really. Nature striding along uh, its usual procession toward winter, while for us, despite all politicians crying for normalcy, nothing felt normal. Uh, it's quite striking as you you look at nature, unchanging, while it feels like everything around us is changing. Uh, probably similar feelings during the pandemic, but uh, a slower moving event, of course. Yeah. I mean, think. Of, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience too, where people come up to you and say, "Oh, I've started to watch birds," or "I've been working on my garden in the backyard," or "I've been," you know. It seemed like while this larger crisis was going on, people were discovering the, uh, this, these natural worlds and seeing. I mean, for me, one of the 
one of the striking things about the beginning of the pandemic was it was a time of isolation, but it was also a time of migration for the birds. And, you know, where I am in North Carolina, it's this massive uh, you know, movement. And so it was the opposite of, of solitude and isolation in a way in, in their world. And I think it continued through the year where, as I said before, we had this kind of dual sense of being private, away, you know, not not necessarily solitude because you were probably trapped in the house with a few other people or, um, and maybe not trapped, that's too mean a word, but, uh, and, but then, you know, my next door neighbor, who was one of the only people I saw at the beginning, uh, he, he voted for the, um, uh, without getting too political here for the candidate I did not vote for. And when the, um, election occurred the next morning i i got a six pack of beer that said to the victor go the spoils uh reaching out from the other side and i just think of how that moment in our neighborhood on a micro level was so different from what i was seeing on the television where you would never think uh one human being who believed differently would would respond in that way and so for me it was all about taking it down to the neighborhood and the smaller level. And, you know, Thoreau was famous for neighborliness. Uh, that's another way the cliche of him is wrong. He, he was a big favorite of the kids in the neighborhood. He would take them on huckleberry parties. And uh, and he really, you know, by knowing Concord and by knowing the people and the animals of Concord really got to know the world. So I just think it's interesting how we think in anthropocentric terms and everything is human, 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 and it takes an effort and discipline to think of the world beyond just us. I mean, it's natural in a way where we've evolved to care most about us, but the ability to care about the world beyond us is, is uh, it's extraordinary in the sense that it takes something extra, you know, and, and Thoreau's a good person pointing that way too, where he he saw kind of a biocentric vision of the world, not anthropocentric. You uh, talk about this in several points in the book, and the, uh, what I'm quoting here is from the epilogue. Um, you say, being himself, speaking of Thoreau, was his calling. Then over the page, you say maybe that's a you know, lesson we can take for ourselves, not to be like Henry, but to take as a lifelong task and a passion the art of being exactly like yourself. Yeah, it's funny how some people who are like that or take the Grateful Dead, you'd, you know, you'd think it would inspire people to be wild and the way they are, but they become deadheads and sad. And people become throwheads and think that, you know, think that how to be is to be exactly like Henry. Whereas it seems to me the essential lesson is how to be in your all your own quirks and strangeness is, is like you. And, and he was emphatically that way. And he said, uh, here, are my, you know, you can try my clothes on, but they may not fit. Don't try on ones that don't fit. So a lot of what he says uh, in the book is emphatic and over-emphatic, and you may disagree with it. And it's not like there's a, uh, despite my book, it's not like there's a thorough plan or thorough program, right? It's just, it's more, um, more following the more, the deep grooves of things that you are already passionate about or that you know you love. That really makes a difference for me. And of course, uh, one of 
most of the year was spent just in Wilmington, North Carolina. But the one time we broke free, my daughter, my wife, and I, and a friend of our my daughter's, uh, headed up to Concord and uh, did a little pilgrimage. And I snuck into Walden Pond at, at 5 a.m. and and had a swim. And um, and so it was it was interesting in the midst of the pandemic to to head head to the home place of of Henry. I'm interested to we're coming down maybe three or four minutes left in the conversation. You're, you're, you know, you live in North Carolina. You've traveled extensively, lived in Colorado. You're traveling out to Utah now. I wonder what the, you know, with this overlay of Thoreau, what's the through line, do you think, between Wilmington, North Carolina, and, and say, Torrey, Utah? Well, I would say, well, first of all, I should mention that Torrey House Press, which is in Torrey, Utah, or in Salt Lake, has been fantastic. And they... You know, I, I compared them the other night at a reading to the equivalent of a microbrewery, right, where, the, again, the smaller, the local. Um, and they're they're having a renaissance right now, um, publishing a lot of great writers. I would just had uh, a talk with Craig Childs, a, a, a great writer who's publishing with Tory also. So there's that. But in a way, my through line is the opposite of Thoreau's. Thoreau, like Wendell Berry, believed you should marry a place and have one place, and that should be your place. I wrote an essay a um, long time ago for High Country News called A Polygamist of Place. I said, that's not against the law. Um, I can love Colorado, I can love Utah, and I can love Cape Cod. Um, I've added North Carolina to the list, and it's just, you know, the way my life has come down, there hasn't been one place that I settled. But I do tend to love places that are beautiful and kind of uh, primal, and I do feel when I'm actually heading to Bluff today, and I get a little bit of a rural, middle-of-winter Cape Cod vibe when I'm there, just a place where people know each other and where the natural world is a prominent feature. You may not think that Cape Cod deserves its place in that conversation, but if you walk the beach in February and see humpback whales and and northern gannets diving into the surf, you, you could reconsider. You might not know you're only an hour and a half from Boston. So there are places that um, uh, have struck a chord with me, and oddly, they tend to be east, west, south. Um, so I'm, I, I'm, I haven't quite defined myself in the Thoreauian sense as a, a one-place person, at least not yet. We just have a couple minutes left. I uh, wonder what, uh, what's, the, what's the top takeaway, do you think, people coming to this discussion? Of course, they'll pick up your book. Uh, throw and our times. What's what's the big takeaway for you? Well, I would say uh, one thing we didn't say in simple terms is nature is a vital. Uh, making nature a vital part of your life is a way to make your life larger, and then you can do that in a in limited nature and in, in backyard nature, and then the thrill of wildness in, in those, in those um, instances. However, that flips me right around to the other side of Thoreau, which is the political and, and fighting for those things that you love. So I guess the takeaway for me is I feel I lucked out by stumbling upon Thoreau in Diane Mead's sophomore English class in high school. And uh, it's not like he's the only writer that's influenced me, but he's been a good roadmap. And he's pointed to some secret 
ways of being and secret places. And so I'm not thinking everybody who reads it is going to suddenly go thorough crazy, but I do think, uh, you know, people say, oh, he's so boring, or, you know, the Walden is hard to get through, and it is hard to get through. It's a collection of nuggety sentences rather than a narrative. Um, but there, there are hints there of, of a, a kind of different way of being, uh, not the life that men praise call successful, but a, a different kind. Well, the book is Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. The author is David Gessner, and you have an opportunity to interact with David Gessner. He's, he has three in-person events coming up uh, in Utah. First of those, July 8th, Entrada Institute in Torrey, 7 p.m., then Boulder Mountain Lodge in Boulder on July 11th at 11 a.m., and July 15th, Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City, 7 p.m. David Gessner, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom, and thanks for reading the book so so carefully and well. I appreciate it. Well, thanks thanks for the book, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to having you in Utah here. Thank you so much. All right. I, I'm about an hour and a half away from uh, crossing in. <laughs> oh, okay, very good. Look, look forward to it. Look forward to it. Thank you. Okay. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, featuring community concerts in Logan's Tabernacle Monday to Friday and celebrating 53 years at the Kane Lyric Theater and 28 years at Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. More information available online at explorelogan.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.